<clears throat> so we, um, <clears throat> this morning we have such a beautiful treat for you. Um, a thing that we have done, so if you're, um, if you're here for the first time, one of the things that we do often in urban is we do this thing called the sevens, when we have, seven, when we have three people um, speak for seven minutes each and uh, around, a, around a topic. And, um, and I think this is, um, in, in some ways, Zoom really, really kind of makes this especially easy for us to do. But we have three absolutely wonderful women that are going to speak about on the theme of women of the Bible. And um, three, uh, uh, Liz Beckett, who's, um, who's a pretty new mum of Shepherd, uh, is going to be speaking first. And um, Liz is coming to us um, really from Vancouver, but, but via Auckland. Um, they're refugees, refugees in Auckland from Canada, um, but they're really, they're really part of us. And um, so it'd be lovely to hear Liz in a minute. Sarah Rankin, who's mum of Francis, um, is going to be speaking second, um, all the way from Swanson. And then Emma Crawley, who, as I've already said, is mum to us all, is going to be speaking to us uh, right there from the heart of Newton, and um, and then she's going to she's going to wrap up the time together. So I'm going to hand you over now to uh, Liz Beckett, mother of Shepherd. Take <laughs> us in there. <laughs> My new identity, mother of yeah. Shepherd. Um, cool. Okay, I'm going to try and share my screen. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, how that goes. Um, can people see that? Emma, can you give me a thumbs up or something? Yeah, cool. Okay, um, so nice to meet you if I haven't met you before. Um, as Lloyd said, um, I've been part of Urban for a while, but I've been living in Canada for the last couple of years. Um, not actually sure how I ended up speaking this morning, but uh, I'm sure most of you have been on the end of the persuasive powers of Vicky Rankin. So, you know, it's, it's a little hard to, to say no, um, but actually I'm happy to do it. It's been a real blessing to be connected back with you all since we've been in Auckland. So today I'm going to talk about Mary, the mother of Jesus, and about pregnancy as a really helpful and beautiful image of our life of faith. Uh, so as Lloyd said, this is especially relevant to me at the moment because I had a baby a few months ago. This is little Shepherd. The photo on the left is um, from when he was about an hour old. And the one on the right is a couple of weeks ago when we were in isolation down in Waihe. So we're going to start by having a little look at Mary's story, which is often read at Christmas, but um, we're going to look at it a little bit differently today. So this is from Luke 1. In the sixth month <coughs> excuse me, of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, 
the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. So I identify with much of Mary's reaction, even though my pregnancy was a human one and not of divine origin. The sense of great favor, but also of feeling kind of troubled. Uh, For me, even though it was planned, it was still a shock. And when I got pregnant, there was a sense that it was like a runaway train, um, that something eternal had begun within me that I was not in control of. And once you're pregnant, there's actually not that much you do in terms of creating the life. Yes, you stay healthy, but the reality is um, the new life is being mysteriously formed within you without effort or your control. And what Mary was asked to do to receive and carry the life of Christ is the calling of all believers. In some ways, Mary is the first Christian, the first person to receive Christ into their life. It's the first time someone has made room for Jesus. She made room for God's life within her own, made room for God to dwell and move in her life. And she puts her trust in God so beautifully. It's one of the most amazing um, kind of bits of devotion to God that we see. That last verse sometimes is translated as, let it be to me as you have said. Let it be. And, you know, for Mary, it's not just, it wasn't just spiritually as we experience Christ's life within us, but he was physically present within her. And now having been pregnant, I just think it's absolutely wild that Jesus came in human form as a baby. I cannot at all comprehend having the God of the universe um, physically present with you. And when I think about the immense vulnerability of a fetus, of a baby, It's incredibly tender to me that Jesus entrusted himself to us, um, to humans as a child. What a close relationship he wants to have with us. And when we remember, excuse me, that it's God at work within us and God at work within the world, I think it makes a huge difference to our life of faith. It changes our relationship to ourselves and to those around us. I think we move from the mindset of that cultural thing where it's about productivity and hustling and striving to one of receiving and waiting and listening, which is ultimately more fruitful. C.S. Lewis said, faith is not a matter of hearing what Christ said long ago and trying to carry it out. The real son of God is at your side. He is beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. He is beginning, so to speak, to inject his kind of life and thought, his Zoe, his life, into you, beginning to turn the tin soldier into a live man. The part of you that does not like it is the part that is still tin. And in Galatians, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Bible, there are so many maternal images like this of God. And I think historically the church has felt a little bit uncomfortable maybe with emphasizing the feminine aspects of God or the feminine metaphors. I feel like ideas say around God winning battles or 
even sports metaphors and sermons um, maybe are kind of more familiar to us than the idea of a God who's as close as a mother breastfeeding her baby or um, a God who's a mother hen gathering chicks under their wing. Um, but the Bible tells us that this is what God is like too. The metaphor of pregnancy for our life of faith has also probably been difficult because it revolves around a woman's body, which has been seen as a dangerous place for a lot of history. Um, but God made his home in the body of a woman. And it seems revolutionary somehow, but also as natural as breathing because our bodies are good. And God must have thought of Mary's body as good in order to make his home there. And I just felt when I was writing this, the Holy Spirit kind of speak to me um, in terms of especially the woman here today about the goodness of your physical body. Um, about the Holy Spirit say there might be some healing for people who struggle with their relationship to that and just that God was saying that it's good. So if you have a womb or not, if you've had a child or not, I think pregnancy and birth are powerful ways for us to connect with the work that God is doing within us. Just as we look to nature and it reminds us of the teachings of Jesus, I think when we see a pregnant woman, it can remind us of the formation of Christ within us. And I hope especially for the men that you can find a way to identify yourself with the life and pregnancy of Mary. I think our invitation today is um, Mary's prayer, to be able to say, let it be to me, as you have said. Um, there's an invitation here to accept God's grace, that he's the one at work within us, that he will bring all things to completion in Christ Jesus. So um, today, yeah, I really just wanted to share about Mary, that she teaches us to say yes to the presence and work of God in us, a continual yes and a continual surrender. And I hope that today you can take a quiet moment to just breathe deeply and be aware of the presence of God within you and to trust that he is forming his life inside of you. Yeah, so thanks and passing on to Sarah. Hi everybody. Um, how wonderful was that, was Mary's contemplation, was Liz's contemplation of Mary and her willingness to receive and, and carry the mystery of God in her. Um, what an incredible example of devotion to God that is. Um, I've chosen to reflect on the story of Naomi and Ruth. You may or may not know this Old Testament story well, and if you haven't read it for a while, here's a quick overview. There was a famine in the land of Israel and Naomi, her husband, and her two sons sojourned from Bethlehem to Moab. The two sons married Moabite women and after they'd been there for 10 years, Naomi's husband and two sons died and she was left with no way to support herself or her daughters-in-law. She implored them to go back, each of you, to her mother's house. One of the daughters-in-law, Ofra, did her bidding and left but the other, Ruth, clung to her. Ruth refused to leave Naomi. She said, Do not entreat me to forsake you, to turn back from you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people is my people, and your God is my God. 
wherever you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do to me, or even more, for only your only death will part you from me. Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem with the whole town astir. Naomi cries, do not call me Naomi, which means sweet or pleasant. Call me Mara, bitter, for, the, for Shaddai, the Almighty, has dealt great bitterness to me. I went out full and empty did the Lord bring me back. Why should you call me Naomi when the Lord has borne witness against me and Shaddai has done me harm? So as the story progresses, Naomi learns that she has a kinsman, a wealthy male relative, whose fields she sends Ruth to glean from. The kinsman, Boaz, notices Ruth and ensures she is protected and generously provided for. In due course, Ruth being a foreigner, oh, sorry, in due course, Ruth asks that Boaz act as her kinsman redeemer. And Boaz accepts this request, despite Ruth being a foreigner, and marries her, clearing their debt and enabling Naomi's family line to continue. The Lord grants Ruth conception, and she gives birth to a son called Obed, who becomes the father of Jesse, who's the father of David, David and the ancestor of Jesus. So the story ends with Obed sitting in Naomi's lap and her friends proclaiming the blessings of the Lord for the way he has restored and redeemed her life. It's a pretty amazing story. Um, there's a lot to learn from this story and there's a few things that stood out to me. Um, on first reading of the story, according to virtues, um, we might learn about the loyalty of Ruth that is so clearly embodied in this story. Um, this reading is certainly useful as mothers, children, friends and associates. It's true we're called to commit to each other in loyalty and to seek the full flourishing of each other. Um, a second reading of the story might draw us to consider Naomi's response to suffering. As the quote I read earlier records, she asks to be received as Mara, the bitter one, rather than Naomi of sweetness. And who can blame her? It'd be incredibly difficult not to be bitter or to think that God had slighted her in some way. And on a theological level too, the meaning of her suffering remains a mystery. However, we can see that through the story, Naomi believes in God's sovereignty over her life both in her suffering and in her redemption. A third reading of the story might heighten our awareness to the context in which the story is unfolding. In Jewish law, Israelites were commanded not to intermarry. Um, and this is the context in which the writer of the book was working. And yet, as we have read, as I've read um, from the story, not only was Ruth embraced as a foreigner, but she was grafted into the most esteemed family line. And as we've come to expect from the Kingdom of God series that we've been studying, God turns our categories of who's in and who's out, who's valuable and who should be discarded upside down. A fourth reading on Mother's Day and what stood out to me the most in reading the story of Ruth and Naomi is its unusual depiction of kinship. Um, rather than being born of blood, Naomi was adopted and loved as a mother, and Ruth was adopted and loved as a daughter. In a similar way, in Matthew 12, when Jesus' family requests 
um, to speak with him. He replies, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he says, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. So the story of Ruth and Naomi, together with Jesus' teaching, reveals that kinship in the family of God includes but doesn't stop at the boundaries of the nuclear family. In God's kingdom, we're called to give ourselves to one another as a mother gives herself to a child and as children love and respect and support their parents. Personally, I find this idea really challenging. My mother died almost 10 years ago, and when this occurred, it left a gap where she had been. For a long time, I resisted anyone's attempt to be a mother to me, and yet, as I've allowed myself to trust in others, such as my stepmother and mother-in-law and those in this church community, I've found I've been welcomed in, and as Ruth was by Naomi, and in some way, I'm bound in a new form of kinship. I want to finish with the verse from the crucifixion in John, when Jesus saw this woman beside the cross, his mother, and the disciple whom he loved standing by. He said to her, woman, here is your son. And to this disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. So Lord Jesus, our perfect mother and our perfect father, would you comfort those whose mothers are absent or estranged, those who have lost a child or lacked the opportunity to carry one? Would you strengthen those who are mothers to children today? Would you help us to truly accept one another as kin and have the grace to be accepted in return, that we may praise the Lord for the way he's restored and redeemed our lives? Amen. Over to you, Emma. Thanks so much, Sarah. That's just so incredibly beautiful. Um, and yeah, oh gosh, both of you, Liz, thank you. And um, I, I, as I was preparing for, for this and, and looking at, um, I guess, reading Woman of the Bible, and I found myself, I guess, less drawn to one particular woman and more so um, reflecting on how I actually can approach reading about, um, well, reading the Bible, but also about reading um, about women in the Bible, and this this kind of tendency to almost read through the lens of of measures that I, you know, am I measuring up to the woman that I'm meant to be, or am I kind of the, a true Christian woman, or you know, this this tendency just to to compare or to try and look at at things like its um, instructions or standards that are meant to kind of measure up to. And, and I suppose all of us have, well, most of us would have some version of a, a not good enough story that we would find um, at sometimes maybe closer to the surface than at other times, but, you know, not feeling like we're a good enough mother or a good enough friend, or, you know, we're not doing a good enough job at work or, you know, there's, there's some version of that that buzzes around in our minds at different times. And, and I find that actually that some of that comes through in when I'm reading the Bible and I, I, I've been reflecting on that and, and one in particular looking at women of the Bible, um, it tends to, to pop into my mind a lot is around Proverbs 31 in the sense of like how it's almost been like, oh, am I a Proverbs 31 woman or am I like 
that it seems to be the, the text that will be pulled out at women's conferences or, um, you know, sort of in women's devotionals, it's, it's all like how to be a Proverbs 31 woman. And it's the sense of like this job description or something that we're, they're meant to kind of achieve. And, and most of us probably leave when it's, when it's like that, leave with the sense of feeling like we're not measuring up or we're not achieving what we should be. So, um, um, when I've been doing some study this year with Vineyard College and one of the things I've been learning is about when we're reading and interpreting the Bible, how important it is to understand what the genre is and what, like who the audience was and um, something around the language. So I thought I'd, I'd have a little look at Proverbs 31 this morning and um, I, I discovered some really interesting things that I thought I'd share with us um, briefly today. So Proverbs 31 is actually an acrostic poem. So taking us back to school days and we would write um, poem. And, and this one was 22 lines long and it had each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, and it, within the book of Proverbs, I guess, all about wisdom, it's this poem that's, that's expressing, you know, really tangible kind of expression of, of this virtue of wisdom, showing us what wisdom looks like in action. And the poem praises the everyday achievements of an upper-class Jewish wife, this woman who keeps her household functioning day and night by buying and trading, investing, planting, sewing, managing servants, extending charity, providing food for the family, and preparing for each season. And as I read into it, you know, that, um, like any good poem, I guess, like a lot of poems, this, the purpose of this one is is drawing our attention to what's over, often overlooked um, as the glory of the everyday, um, everyday things. So rather than it being intended as, a, as some sort of a job description or an assignment that we're meant to kind of measure up to, um, the purpose of this poem is to celebrate wisdom in action, you know, not to instruct all of us women to go and get married and to have kids and to master the, the art of every craft and, and start the best kind of Pinterest um, life that we could have. Um, so that, that's kind of the genre, even understanding that it's a poem, but the audience was really interesting to me because in Jewish culture, it's not actually the woman that would memorize Proverbs 31, but actually the men. Um, and men would memorize this poem as um, to sing it as a song of praise to the woman in their lives, their, their wives, their daughters, sisters, mothers, and friends. And it's actually a blessing that's to be spoken over a woman who God has already said is good. I was reading about an Orthodox Jewish woman who said this, Every week at the Sabbath table, my husband sings the Proverbs 31 poem to me, it's special because I know no matter what I do or don't do, he praises me for, the, for blessing the family with my energy and creativity. All women can do that in their own way. So this beautiful kind of picture of actually this, rather than it be a list of things that we need to measure up to, this poem that, that, women, uh, that men would actually sing over the women in their lives is a blessing to them for, for what they contribute to the world, just, I guess, and who they are. And the last part of that, I just wanted to look at it. We don't have time to kind of look at the language of all of the poem, but the first line of the poem, it's, it says, a virtuous woman who can, who can find. And that's best translated as a woman of valor who can find. In Hebrew, and I definitely won't be pronouncing this properly, but in Hebrew, it's eshet woman of valor. 
And in this, the, the structure of this poem, it, it really closely resembles a, a heroic poem that celebrates the exploits of a warrior. And while valor isn't actually about like a particular role or, or exactly what someone is doing, it's so much more about courage and bravery and integrity and faithfulness and wisdom and strength. So this, this poem, that this blessing that they would sing and celebrate women is, is this, you know, these kind of characters, this, this fruit that, that grows in these women. Um, the, the same Jewish lady explained that actually between her and her Jewish friends, they cheer one another on with this, this blessing of woman of valor. So celebrating everything from when they get a promotion to pregnancies to acts of mercy and justice or, um, you know, beating a battle with cancer. They'd, they'd celebrate each other and cheer each other on with this kind of like a really good hearty eshetshi, a woman of valor. And what a beautiful picture that is, even for us, is an invitation to celebrate the, the daily acts of faithfulness and that we see exhibited um, in women's lives. And what I love when we look at the woman in the Bible is that actually what it looks like to be a woman of valor is so different for each person. There's not, it's not defined by a particular role or, or something like that. But one, one of the women who, who really inspires me, I guess, or who I connect with is, around, is Mary Magdalene. And Luke tells us that it was from Mary Magdalene that, that Jesus cast out seven demons. And then having been freed from her demons, she followed Jesus and she supported his ministry from her own pocket. And in the end, it was, it was Mary who did not deny Jesus. Um, he, she didn't betray Jesus or leave when it got really awful. And with just a couple of other faithful women, she stood at the cross. She stayed. And after Jesus died, it was Mary who came to the tomb while it was still dark. And she stood there and she wept. She didn't recognize the resurrected Christ until he spoke her name, but she turned at the sound of it. And it was her, this, this deeply faithful and deeply flawed woman who Jesus chose to be the first witness of his resurrection and to whom he commanded to go and tell everybody else about it. And so Mary got to be the first to proclaim in the midst of the loss and the sorrow that death had been defeated. And what I love in Matthew 28, 8, it says, the woman hurried away from the tomb with fear and great joy. And I love that, you know, this, this being like a deeply flawed, but deeply, you know, actually faithful woman to Jesus, no matter whether she had fear, but also when she stayed and was present to Jesus, she um, experienced great joy as well as fear. One of my favorite um, authors, Nadia Boltzweber, she talks about Mary Magdalene being the patron saint of showing up. And I like that, you know, that, that picture of showing up, being present to what's real and to what's happening right now, no matter if it's really uncomfortable or if we're afraid. You know, she didn't necessarily know what to do or what to say, um, or even kind of what to think probably when she encountered the risen Jesus. But she stayed. What mattered was that she... She was present and she was um, attentive to Jesus. And I, I know so many women um, in my own life who are women of valor. Um, you know, we've touched on some of those today. You know, women, women who have showed up and who, who keep showing up despite really difficult circumstances. Um, 
despite fear and, and um, uncertainty or, or really painful things. You know, women who have experienced pain and loss but continue to show up. And, and as Sarah touched on, you know, women who have lost children and people who have lost mothers or lost parents or lost loved ones yet continue just to, to keep showing up despite it being painful, but just to keep showing up. And I, you know, I'm mindful of women that I know and, and within our church who have lost marriages or who have lost businesses or jobs and things just haven't turned out as they had hoped um, and, and yet continue to show up in the everyday ordinary things. There can be so many challenges of parenting or, you know, um, so many different stressful things and yet so many um, examples of this incredible act of showing up and of of bringing um, all of that, the, the fear and the joy and everything in between to Jesus and just in that act of surrender, um, simply just showing up and saying yes again. Women who have, you know, been rejected multiple times and yet continue to go on that next date to go and meet someone they met off the internet or someone set them up with and that openness and that, that um, you know, bringing all of the longing and the disappointments and, and yet continue to show up and take, take that next step. People who have said yes to Jesus, even though they can't see how things will work out. People who have been there for their friends and their neighbours in small acts of kindness that are actually really big acts of kindness. People who have phoned someone who's having a hard time, even though they didn't know what to say or exactly what they could do, but just showed up and, and was present. People who have been hurt and chosen to forgive. You know, these are the kinds of things that that inspire me about um, acts and women of valor. These, you know, these brave women, these incredibly courageous people who live with integrity and wisdom in, in these everyday things. And it's all of this that I think we can celebrate today as, you know, Jesus never, he didn't come with standards or a list of things that was a job description for us. You know, he, he came and he showed compassion he was present to us and with us and he showed compassion and, and mercy and love. And in seeing our brokenness and seeing our fear, seeing us and seeing where we aren't actually good enough, you know, he, he is good enough. He healed people and he set people free and he simply said, come, follow me and, you know, be with me. Just say yes to that, to showing up and, and let me do the rest. And it's in that place and, you know, with, with everything that, um, that we've heard this morning, this sense of actually it's God who is at work in us to bring this new life. Um, that we, we say yes and, and we, we have that act of surrender, that act of faith, that, that we receive his grace to create that new life in us and through us. And that sense of actually we have been adopted. We are adopted and loved and, and, and we can choose to, to believe that and, and, you know, knowing that actually it's not about measuring up in any kind of way. We just get to say yes to Jesus. And gosh, I'm grateful about that. You know, uh, I was thinking of the, the video that Lloyd shared last week about, you know, Henry now and talking about how we just long to be productive. We look for how we can be doing things or that we are doing, creating something new or something that can, that shows, but actually, Jesus' invitation of actually what he's most interested in is the fruit that's being created in us and grown in us. And often we won't even see that. Um, so it's with all of that this morning that we are going to come around the communion table 
together today. And we, um, if you're joining us for the first time, um, you know, what, what we like to do is just to take communion together. Um, we, we just, if you don't have anything prepared, that's okay. You might like to take that following this, but what I just invite us to do is, um, is to, I'm just going to read a, um, a short prayer. And so as you get your, your bread and your juice ready, let me lead us through this prayer. And it's the prayer of bringing. 